This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. So we're looking at Genesis 1. We're going to read from Genesis 1 into uh, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, and then we're going to go through uh, chapter 2, verse 3. So listen uh, to God's Word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And he called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, and according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, Plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its time. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth 
and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruits. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good and there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished and all their host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. You were the one who spoke, let there be light, and there was light. And we thank you for your creation, and we thank you for the light that you have spoken into our hearts by your spirit, that you've opened our eyes to know you as creator, and even more, to know you as redeemer in Jesus Christ. And we pray today, uh, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would increase our vision for you, of you, that you would increase our capacity for awe and wonder. I pray that you would stretch us in the categories of awe and wonder and glory uh, and exaltation in the God who is so other than us, so beyond us, so above us. Uh, Lord, you are not just a better us, you are God. And so we bow before you today and we ask that you speak to us through the scripture and I pray that you would, Lord, that you would have your way, that you would increase our trust in you as we consider what you have done in bringing everything to pass by the simple act of your word. I pray you'd fill me with your spirit and help me to focus and cover a lot of material in a focused way, Lord, that we might all be um, blessed by your word. Speak to us today. We are listening. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, that's a lot. Uh, a lot of stuff happened there, didn't it? Um, I was going to cover all this today, and I just had a, felt like there's a lot that needs to be said about the nature of man on the sixth day and what it means to be created in his image and to take dominion and some of those kind of things. So I prepared a message and never got to that. So I'm going to make all that I just read kind of a two-part message. Uh, even the pastors, I talked to them about this on Thursday and just, man, I'm overwhelmed. There's so much stuff here. And uh, so they didn't even know that they thought I was covering all this until they're hearing it with you live right now. I'm going to break it into two messages uh, because I want to say today, I want to talk about God. And next week, I want to talk about God. You'll be glad if you're a visitor. We talk about God every Sunday from his word. Next week, I'm going to talk about God, but I want to talk specifically about the nature of humanity and our calling and purpose as revealed through the sixth day. So I just can't do all that and do, it, do anything at all. So today we're going to talk more about God. Last week we talked about looking at creation and worshiping God. And today I want to talk about looking at creation and trusting God in a way. Let me ask you this question. What, what do you think the purpose of this text is? 
What do you think the purpose of this text is? I don't think a lot of us ask that question when we come to a passage like this, particularly this passage. I don't think we ask the question, what is the goal? What is the purpose of the text? Uh, We often come to this text, or people that we read often comes to this text with a set of questions that we want answered. May I suggest to you to approach the scripture with a set of questions you want answered will always lead you in a wrong direction. If you, if you impose your presuppositions and the answers God must give you, and you come to the text with that in mind, you, you will miss it. We come to the text saying, God speaks, God reveals himself, and I want to know what is God's purpose? What is he revealing of himself, and what is, he, uh, what is his purpose in the text? So to get at the purpose of this text and to ensure that we're not just bringing our own agenda and our own questions and our own way of thinking to it, uh, I think it's good to start with who wrote the text. Now, God inspired the text, but if we think about who wrote it and and when was it first read, for whom was it written, I think it gives us something of a vision of the purpose of the text. The first five books of the Bible, called the Pentateuch, um, are, uh, are the books of Moses. They're referred to in the scriptures, the book of Moses. So it's been understood that Moses uh, likely wrote Genesis. Now, he didn't write all the first five books because his death is recorded in Deuteronomy. So we think there was some editing. Someone uh, added, uh, added that one. But, uh, but traditionally, it's viewed that Moses penned this under God's revelation and God's inspiration. And so if that's the case, this would have been written to the Uh, people of God, when they were in the wilderness, they had escaped Egypt, they were in the wilderness, and they were on the brink of going into the promised land and taking what God had for them. And God chose at that time to reveal the history of creation. And so that might help us get at what the text is aiming to communicate. Now, some scholars, I don't agree with them, but some scholars who are less conservative uh, believe that this was written during the Babylonian captivity. And even if we granted, even if I granted that for the sake of argument, uh, even there, I think the purpose when the people were in captivity and the purpose when the people are in the wilderness wouldn't be that different. It really wouldn't be that different, that God is communicating to the first readers, and that's where we always start. We always start with where would, if we know, what would have been the context of the first readers that God is seeking to communicate? Well, to the people in the wilderness, he is communicating that he is greater than the gods of Egypt. He's just released them from Egypt, and this plays out in the creation story very clearly, that their God, the sun, is not even named in the first chapter. It's just called the light. God spoke. God is so much greater than the Egyptian God, the God of the sun, that God just refers to it simply as the greater light to rule the day. Doesn't even give it a name in the creation. He spoke and that came to be. And they're about to go into Canaan, which has a plethora of gods, and he is communicating to them, in essence, that whatever God you encounter, know that I am the God that spoke and out of nothing, everything came to be. He's communicating to his people and to us that we are not alone, that we are created with purpose, that God is awesome in power. His power is indescribable. His authority is breathtaking. They're about to face the largest battles of their existence, and God wants them to know my authority is breathtaking, that I simply speak, and something that does not exist comes into being. 
His plan is irresistible. What he wants to happen, what he speaks, happens. The text is seeking to answer the who question. Who created all of this? How did all of this come to be in in an ancient world that had uh, competing creation stories, competing creation myths among all the people that they encountered? He wants to communicate to them that he is the one. So we get a lot of who, we don't get a lot of how. And we come with a lot of how questions. Science is good at answering how questions. Science is very poor at answering why questions often. Science answers how and when oftentimes. And so we bring a mindset of asking how questions, and the agenda of Genesis 1 is the who question. If you walk away with a lot of how and a lot of when and not a lot of who, you have missed the intent of the first chapter of Genesis. And why is this important to think about maybe the original context? Well, it, help us to, it helps us to separate what is primary and what is secondary. I don't believe there is a single Israelite walking around in the wilderness asking how old is the earth? Not one of them. Nobody read, when, Ma- when Moses produced this, nobody said, oh, well, hold on, I got a fossil here. I'm not saying the fossil question's irrelevant. I'm just saying that's not the purpose of this text. Another another way to get at the purpose is to ask, what kind of literature is this? What kind of genre of writing is this? Uh, Not just who is the audience, but what kind of the original audience, and we're the audience too, but but who is the original audience? But secondarily, uh, what kind of writing is this? When I read this, I read this like a historical narrative that it is historical, maybe not in the way that we would write a history, that a modern historian would write the history of a, of a battle or an event, but it is, it is certainly historical in the way it reads. Historical in the sense of this. This is what really happened. This is what really happened. It reads as a history describing this is what really happened. Now, it's, it's a theological history because he doesn't tell us everything. It doesn't read like a scientific document, though it's not opposed to science, but it doesn't read like a scientific article. Uh, It doesn't read like a myth. You know, we have certain conventions of myth. If I were to say, once upon a time, you wouldn't think I'm going to say something historical. So it doesn't read like a myth. It reads like a history, but a theological history, a history that is told factually and actually, but with a very clear point. Not to tell everything, not to explain all the hows, but to make a very clear point that God in his greatness is our creator. It reads like something that really happened. It doesn't read like a journalistic article. It doesn't give us, I took journalism in high school, I don't remember anything except who, what, when, where, why, and how. A journalistic news story is supposed to tell all of those. This doesn't tell all of those in detail like a journalist would cover an event. It is a history, it is a, a theological history that is real, that, that, it, that is not f- spoken in a figurative manner, but is what really happened. And it's told with a certain symmetry and beauty. So while it is historical, I believe, it's also told with a, uh, an elegance, it's told with a literary symmetry. There's something very beautiful about the way it's communicated. In verse 2, we see that the earth was without form and void. So the, wor- the, uh, the, earth, the world has no shape, 
There is this sort of chaos, something called the waters that are there. Uh, It is formless and it is empty. Okay? It is formless and it is empty. And then this is what Moses does in describing God's creation. The first three days address the form and the second three days uh, address this this emptiness. Here's a a chart that shows uh, how this is written. This is uh, what you're seeing is a lot of authors highlight this, um, but this is from Derek Kidner, the exact way he says it. So we get this, it's without form and it's empty, and so we get form and fullness. There's a parallel. On day one, we get light and darkness. Day two, we get sea and sky. And day three, we get fertile earth. But look at how there's a parallel. Day one is light and darkness, and it parallels day four, where we get the the sun and the moon and the planets, the, the lights of day and of night. So there's a parallel. God creates the form in day one, and he fills it in day four. Day two, we get the sea and the sky. And isn't it interesting that the parallel in day five, we get the creatures of water and we get the birds of the air. So God is creating a form. This is his method. He creates a form where there is nothing and then he fills it. On day three, we get the fertile earth. And in day six, we get all the creatures of the land, all the creepy crawly things and the animals. And we also get Uh, humanity, man, uh, on day six as well. So it's told in a a beautiful, uh, symmetrical sort of a way. There's a a beauty even into the the form of creation. It is communicated to us the way God creates. Uh, And then on day seven, of course, God rests. So that is that is sort of the, the form of it. Now, there's a couple ways that we could go through this. My normal way is to just go through uh, verse by verse. So one way would be to look at each of the six days in detail. But there's another way to look at this, and I want to I I do something a little bit different with uh, this today, having seen the pattern. What I'd like to do is look at, there is a pattern to each day of creation, and I'd like to look at the pattern of creation and see what God does uh, on each day, because every day, though it has different contents of creation, it really follows a very, uh, uh, a very um, clear, clear pattern. So I want to look at the pattern and see what do we see about God in the way God creates. So we're today looking at what do we learn about God when we see the way that God creates heaven and earth. And the first thing that happens on each day is there is an announcement. Number one, I'm going to give you six things. Number one is there is an announcement. Look at verse three. And God said, day one, look at verse six. And God said, verse nine. And God said, verse 11. And God said, verse 14. And God said, are you seeing a pattern? Verse 20. And God said, verse 24. And God said, verse 26. Then God said, that's a little different. It didn't say and said then, but each day, God said. Now, why is this communicated? Why is this repeated, this this announcement? Because it reveals something about the power and the nature of God. It tells us something about creation, for sure, but it tells us something about the indescribable power of God, that he is able to speak, that he is a God of speech, and that creation occurs 
as a result of his speech. From the very beginning of the Bible, from the first chapter of the Bible, we learn that God is a speaking God, that God reveals himself through speech, and that God works, that he creates through speech as well. And he continues to speak to his creation through his written word, He continues to speak to us through the scripture, the God-breathed word, and he speaks to us ultimately in the incarnate word, the word made flesh, that means, Jesus Christ, who is the word. So God is the focus of Genesis 1, and God's speech is his announcement of each creation, of each aspect of creation. His announcement is particularly given attention in chapter 1. Each day, and God said, he, he repeats it. It's like this majestic march, day after day, sort of building up to a pinnacle where he will create the highlight of all creation, man in his image. So it is about him. God is mentioned 35 times in the first 35 verses of Scripture. Now, that's not trivia, That should govern how we read our Bibles. That should govern how we interpret our Bibles. That should govern what we seek to get out of our Bibles, what we're looking for in our Bibles. We are looking for, in the first place, there's more, there's application to our lives, but in the first place, we are looking for a revelation of God. Always in the scripture, and that's what the first chapter gives us. And it is only God who is acting. The triune God. The triune God, God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We know that from other places in Scripture that we looked at last week. But it is only God who is acting. One author said this, that in chapter 1 of Genesis, God is the soloist in the creation account. God is the soloist. It is, it is as if we are looking at a stage, and we are in the audience, and there's one performer. There's one actor And it's not the sun, and it's not the tree God, or let's move it out of the original writing. Let's move it today. Some today would say, well, there's two actors on the stage. There's time and chance. And through time and chance, everything came that, that came to be. The Bible says emphatically, no. It is not time and chance. It is not random. It is not if you have enough time if you have enough time, the probabilities are that we will end up with what we have. You know, the, the theorem of the, the infinite monkeys theorem. If you have an infinite number of monkeys typing on typewriters for an infinite amount of time, that over a certain amount of time, they would randomly produce all the works of Shakespeare. That's a probability theorem. And so that's not it. The Bible doesn't say over an endless amount of time that we're going to ultimately get what we have impersonally Um, not caused by a being, an all-powerful creator, we're going to get what we have. No, the Bible is very clear that it is God who is the solo performer on the stage acting and creating through announcement, and God said. This also highlights the doctrine of God's word. From the first chapter, we find out every day the creation occurs because God speaks. God's speech, God's word is to ever be 
uh, our attention because everything that is created came from his speech. And now he informs us, he reveals himself by his speech. He saves us by speech. By the word of God, we are saved. He guides and changes us by speech. He is a speaking God, and so our attention from the very first chapter of the Bible should be focused on the God who speaks by his word. Number two, there is commandment. So he says, and God said, and then let there be. He utters a command, and it occurs. Now, let there be, or let it be, or let occur, uh, the Latin for that is fiat. So often this is called uh, creation by divine fiat, meaning he just says, let it happen, and it happens. So sometimes you'll hear that term. That's what fiat means. It's the rendering of the phrase, let there be, or let it occur. Um, Again, now we are way over our heads in all this how the how questions, but we do get the who and we do get what he does. Day, verse three, day one, let there be light. Verse six, day two, let there be an expansion in the midst of the waters. Verse nine, day three, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. Verse 11, let the earth sprout vegetation. Let, let it happen, let there be. Verse 14, let there be lights. This is day four. Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Verse 20, day five, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth. Day six, let the earth speak forth living creatures according to their kinds. Verse 26, let us make man in our image. So there is this commandment. Let this happen. He says, let this happen happen, the verbal command of God. He accomplishes what he desires. He creates what he wills. The creation is purposeful. It is expressed when God speaks it into existence. There are no chance occurrences. In no way it appears random. Uh, We don't get a lot of the how again, but we get the he speaks and it occurs. Number three, there is a report. I find this fascinating. So he said, And what he said, I get that. I mean, that would make sense. But we get more than that. We get a report, and it was so. So there's a narration going on here. There's a soloist, and there's like a narration of what the soloist is doing. Verse 7, and God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. It was so. What a great detail. It's, it's It's a very clear detail that what God wanted to happen, happened. There's just a, there's a, there's a punctuation, punctuation mark on here that, that God did what God wanted. It was so. It was so, maybe a shorthand for God is sovereign. It's a shorthand for God rules. God creates. God does what God wants to do. Nothing defies God's will in creation. 
When God wants waters to separate, they separate. When God wants vegetation to appear, it appears. When God wants birds created, not only does he say it, but it is so. When God desires a universe, the timeless, eternal God, when he desires a universe, he speaks and it was so. I love that. I just, so just three English words, and it, or that's four, I guess it is. It was so. It is so. It is so. It was so, I guess it's four words, it, and it was so. He spoke, here's what he said, and it happened. It's definitive, it's powerful, it's glorious. It's a detail that he didn't have to give, but he gave to us. And it is a, it is a promise, it's not written as a promise, but it's a, there's an assurance there for us that when God wants his will to occur, it will happen. And you can take comfort in that. I can take comfort in that. So simple, speaks and it happens. Ian Duguid, in writing about creation, this passage says, having heard his will declared, we see the end result effortlessly springing into being. God doesn't even break into a sweat creating a universe. It's just simple, speak and it happens. Now we'll get to this next week, but he's not resting because he's tired on the seventh day. He's setting a pattern of days for us to live by is what he's doing. We see that elsewhere in scripture. But God is not depleted of energy. He is infinite energy. God does not lessen in power or lessen in strength. He is always the same by character. So this isn't wearing God out. It's a word. He desires it, he speaks it, and it is so. Last week we talked about worship. This should cause, and it was so, should cause us to just step back a minute. We have very humanized views of God. Now, I'm not talking about Jesus who's incarnate, fully God and fully man. I mean, we have very limited views of God oftentimes. We view God as like just a really, really strong human. A really, really better human than all of us, but like a really smart human. Like a really human that, he's got some magical powers, but he's a lot more like us than he is dislike us. No, God is completely, it's not, we're not comparable here. This week I was at a uh, basketball game and they had a, uh, a display, a statue, uh, not a statue, well, it was, it was a painting rather with all these height marks and it had LeBron's, uh, had basketball players, had LeBron's reach on there as the top. So you could stand up next to it and you could put your hand up. And uh, so I'm a pretty tall guy, but just seeing LeBron's reach was pretty, pretty amazing. And actually I had some guy's shoes there too, somebody had like a size 18 shoe and you could stand, they were upside down, so you could stand on the shoes and see what like really massive NBA feet are, are all about. And when I watched LeBron play, for instance, I, I reached up there and thought, man, this guy's got a wingspan. When I watch him play, I'm just amazed. However, uh, he's just like a really, really good me because I can reach two. I, I can dribble two. I can shoot and even make some baskets two. He's like a really good me. His percentage would be better. I, I could, if I wanted to, you know, run through the lane into some barreling brick wall and get knocked unconscious, just like he does, but he's knocking other people unconscious. I could do the same thing. I might not live to tell about it, but I could do that. So the difference in LeBron and me in terms of reach, dribbling, shooting, and driving the lane is a difference of degree. 
He's like really, really good, and I'm really, really not good, and getting older and getting less good. Somebody last night at the G2 meeting, I was talking to a dad, two dads in the church, and the topic of exercise came up, and one of the dads said, at my age, uh, all exercise is, is just like resisting the decay, slowing the decay, I think he said. That's all I'm doing. I'm just slowing the decay. So it's just a difference in degree. But with God and with me, it's a difference in category. Because I cannot speak, and out of nothing, something comes, and people say, it was so. If you're a mother of a preschooler, you know you don't speak, and always, it is so. <laughs> if you are married, you know you don't speak, it was so, always and forever. Your perfect will being uh, being acted upon. Never. You can't look at the circumstances of your life, the difficulties, and with your word, defy them. And, and they will say, oh, it is so. This is one of the problems with prosperity theology, is the theology that you can speak to things that are not as though they were and they become something. That is the prerogative of God and not you. The primary difference between God and you and me, we are to speak his word. Now, I, I agree with that part of it. We are to speak his word and we are to trust his word. But I don't have the choice to just come up with what I think should happen in a situation and speak it into existence. That's God. So we are different in category. It's not that he is a little bit better. It's not that he's LeBron and you are you. It's that he is God and you are not and that is a primary lesson to get from the first chapter of Genesis. Announcement, and God said, commandment, let there be, report, and it was so. Next, naming. Naming. Do you ever think about this? And he called. Look at verse 5. God called the light day, and the darkness he had called night. He named them. Verse 8. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. He called it heaven. Verse 10, God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas. He named them. See, in the Bible, authority is expressed through naming. And this is why we'll see next week that when he creates humanity with dominion, this is why God uh, gives Adam the responsibility to name the animals. He doesn't name the animals, Adam does. Because G Adam is given a delegated dominion, a delegated rule over creation, under God's uh, oversight and design. And so Adam names the animals, why? Because naming is a, is a sign of authority, and God's sphere of authority is over everything. So God's naming planets, God's naming earth, God's naming the everything, heavens, Adam gets to name earthworm. Okay, he gets to pick earthworm, kitty cat, tiger. He gets some of these. God will name the huge <laughs> issues of creation, and then he will, to his, uh, to his uh, created man, he will give him responsibility to name as well. Do you see God's authority? Do you see God's authority in this? That he says, and it is so, and that he names. Do you see how that kind of authority, the God who doesn't break a sweat, 
creating the universe, the God who has all authority to name the planets, do you see how that could minister to you today? That whatever you are facing, Christian, you serve the God who created everything by the power of a simple word. Can that God not do something powerful for you? Can he not? Can God not meet you? Can God not provide your needs? Is God limited? God is way more powerful than previously believed or reported. He is glorious. He can speak. Can God not provide your need? Can God not give you victory by grace through the power of Christ through his scripture? Can God not give you victory over that sin that is dominating your life? Can God not free you by his power over time through that addiction? Can God not do that? Can God not comfort your grieving heart? Grief is part of life following the fall. But can God not meet you in your grief where you think, I don't see how life could go along, along. will I ever feel normal again? Can God not meet you in the middle of that grief and sustain you and help you by a word, by his presence? Can God not heal the painful memories of your abuse? Can God not give you a spouse or a child? Or could God not grant you contentment in your single state or your childless state? Could God not do that? Could God not heal you physically? Can God not heal you? God is naming planets and creating everything by the word of his power. Can God not bring healing to you, or could God not give you vibrant faith and joy in the midst of your illness to sustain you until the day uh, he does heal you on this, in this life, or the day where you're eternally healed when you see him face to face? Can God not sustain you? Can he either heal you now or sustain you so that you experience joy, faith, and peace in the midst of suffering? Can God not do that? Can God not save your son or your daughter? Can God not save your father or your mother? God is all powerful. The, the, the people of Israel, I believe this is in the wilderness, I believe Moses wrote this, I believe it's in the wilderness, wilderness, but even if it was later in captivity, they are still looking like they're, they're going to be encountering, in captivity they're encountering human powers, uh, and they're about to go into the uh, land of Canaan, which to think what's happening here, and they're going to encounter human powers. They're going to encounter, oh, one of the reports is going to be, there's giants in the land. Once they spied out, there's giants in the land. If you've got Genesis 1 with you, the giants in the land are a lot less intimidating for the covenant people of God. God spoke you into existence. God can speak them out of existence with empower you as you take the land that he has given them by covenant. So there's naming. Next, there's evaluation. I'll say some more about this next week. But God commands... Uh, God comments throughout on evaluation. I love this. And it was good. Verse 4. We don't just get the creation. We get an evaluation. Uh, God separated the light from the darkness. God called... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I, I missed that. Verse uh, 4. And God saw that the light was good. Verse 10. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. 
verse 31, when he finishes the six days of creation, it says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, that means look at this, check this out, focus, don't miss this. It was very good. There was evening and the morning, there was the sixth day. God's evaluation of his work is that creation is good. And that's going to communicate a lot to us when we think about what do we learn about man in this passage coming uh, in, at the end. We're going to find out that what God has created is good. The material world is good. God, as I think it was C.S. Lewis, somebody said God was the original materialist. God likes matter. God created matter. Uh, he sort of likes that. It's not just God's into spirit, but he really doesn't like matter. He likes, no, he created, and now we're in a fallen world, but he created everything originally good. We're not to idolize the creation, but we are to value it as something that God has created. And though we have dominion, oh, this is getting into next week. Though we have dominion over it, uh, we have a dominion that is accountable to the God who said, my creation is good, which means we don't do whatever we want with his creation um, if profit's involved, but we, we are called to steward God's creation, uh, all that is created. So there's, there's much there for us. But the Bible says the earth is the Lord's. And so as those who live on the planet, we don't worship the planet. Uh, the things are given for our use to be sure, but we also don't abuse what God has created. So uh, he creates everything good. Now it's good, it's not just morally good. There's no fall, there's no sin yet. Uh, so it's not just morally good, it it's probably means aesthetically good. What he communicated is beautiful. When we sang the song this morning, uh, you're beautiful, and we see your beauty, God, through the creation, which is separate from you, but reflects your power and your character. Beautiful, vibrant, creative. Uh, it's majestic. The creation's full of wonder. It's lovely. It's pleasing. These are the kind of things that it's good is. So the glory of creation should provoke us to see how good, how beautiful. When, when the band led us in that song this morning, we were doing that. We were saying, Lord, you are beautiful when we consider the sunrise we see that ultimately it points to you. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Does the creation draw your heart to God? It's just easy. It's easier to, well, it's easy to take it for granted. It's easier to see a sunrise now. You can see it an hour later than you could eight days ago. That's, that's kind of nice. You could sleep in and still see the sunrise nowadays. You couldn't last week or the week before. Uh, with daylight savings, but it, does the creation draw your heart? Do you, do, you, do you see the pointers all around you of the glorious power of God? Last thing is time frame. Last thing is time frame. My apologies to the person who was hoping I would start with what is the length of the days? That's my concern. Uh, my apologies to you and the, age of, and the age of the earth people, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna disappoint, disappoint uh, length of the days and age of the earth people, because I just think it's secondary. Uh, I think it's secondary. But what he does here is he gives us, well, the age of the earth, I don't think this text answers that question, but it does say something about days. So I want to say something very briefly about that. We're given a schedule of creation here. God separates the creation into days. Why? Well, he didn't have to. God is it possible that God could have done everything at once? Spoken and everything, boom, came into play at once. Light, planets, earth, animals, vegetation, humanity, 
of course. The point of the text is God's not limited. He can do what he wants. So he could have done it that way, but he does it in a period of six days, and then we get the seventh day that he rests. He is, he is not only creating uh, end time, but he is sort of creating with time, we could say. He is sort of creating a pattern of time in how, uh, how we are to live. He is orders our time. He not only orders the creation, he not only speaks and has this very orderly creation, but he orders time as well. And we're going to see later that matters because he's going to say six days you should do your work uh, and the seventh day you should rest. So there's this order of time that we get in here. In verse five, he says, for instance, uh, there was evening and there was morning the first day. Verse 8, he says, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. So this repeats throughout. So part of the pattern is that he gives us the time frame of what happens. Uh, the length of the days are discussed with great passion uh, by some folks, and I, and I respect the sincerity of that passion to argue, well, well not to argue with a bad attitude, but to seek to to stand for something that you think is important to the scriptures. But let me just say that I'm not going to make a big deal of this. This is not in our statement of faith. If you read our church's statement of faith, it's, we, we, read, we believe that God created the heavens and the earth, but we're not making a statement. I read this week at least eight theories on the length of the day. So we're not picking one and saying, if you don't agree with this one, uh, you're out. Or that this is somehow the orthodox view and that everything else is not. You don't have to agree with my approach, but here's, in short, my approach. I, I think there's two, in my mind, two good options. And I'm making, my, I'm making my evaluation exegetically. I'm trying to draw from the text and say, what does the text say? And so I'm doing this as an interpreter of the Bible. I'm not doing this as a geologist. Let me just make that clear. I'm not speaking in those ways. I'm speaking, what does the scripture think? I think one of two options. In my mind, the best thing is to take a day as a day. So some people read these as literal solar days or 24-hour days. We could say it that way. Uh, I think that holds up in the text. If you read the text, I think someone could say 24-hour days and come away because the word day is used repeatedly. And usually when that word is used elsewhere in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, that word means a day. Sunrise, sunset, a day. It means that. Uh, there's another view which I think also does... Uh, does is fair exegetically to the text, and that's the, that's the idea, it's called the analogical day uh, view, and that is that the day is being used as an analogy, kind of what I've already hinted at, that God is ordering time, and that God is setting a pattern for how we live, but God's uh, functional creation days may not be exactly like our days, at least not throughout. And here's where I think that's exegetically true. There is no sun until day four. So if we're talking about a solar day, throughout, throughout the Old Testament, you read sun up, sunrise, that's how people are marking days. We don't even have a sun until day four. We have light and darkness and God's doing something in a day but there is, no, there is no sun. It's not until day four that he says that the planets are given for the seasons, for the days, and for the years. So prior to day four, there wasn't a tangible way of marking years, for instance. So that's one reason. The second reason is that day seven, there does not say there was evening and there was morning. It's sort of an endless day. There was the day of rest. I, 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 I find it, uh, it, it could be a 24-hour day, but that might be a challenge. 
because we enter into God's rest now as believers. God is still living in the seventh day. It wasn't a 24-hour period. It was an ongoing period. So I think it's possible to say God works at least those first three days and the seventh day. He uses the word day in a way that might not be marked by time as we do, but it's still, it's still viewed as a, as a day in, in, in the way he works. So I think either of those try to deal with the word day exegetically from a fair point of view looking at the text. Um, but uh, so I, I lean on one of those two, um, and I read it, you know, fairly literally, pretty literally there. But um, that, that's how I read it. You could have a different view, and uh, and we can still love Jesus and be saved. The point is that I'm making tremendously is that God is the Creator. So that's pretty clear from what I'm saying. I don't accept atheistic evolution that, that, that it happened by chance and randomly and all that. I don't. I don't believe that. Very clearly, I don't think the scripture teaches that at all. It's a personal God who creates in a pattern, in a period of days. He doesn't tell us exactly how those first three or the seventh work, okay? So that could be viewed some different ways, but it's clearly God who is the creator. That's what we learn from the passage. And I am about uh, out of time. Let Let me say a little bit here about application. We'll wrap up. So there's an announcement, there's a commandment, there's a report, there's a naming, there's an evaluation, and there's a time frame. What Genesis 1 does not give us is an abstract description of the origins of the universe. It is not an abstract description. It is a personal description. It is a narrative account of God creating. And I read one commentator, I read a bunch of stuff, but one commentator, a liberal commentator that I wouldn't agree with a lot of what he says, but this is what he said that I did love. He said, the affirmation of Genesis 1 is this, quote, this God can be trusted. I think that's a point of Genesis 1. This God can be trusted. Last week we looked at this God should be worshipped. And we read Psalm 148 and worshipped the Creator this morning. But even more than that, this God can be trusted. Why? He has all power. How does that apply to your needs today? He has all power. He, he, his will is irresistible. He speaks and it comes to be. He rules over all. So whether you're fighting Canaanite gods or whether you're fighting cancer, whether you just came out of Egypt where everybody was bowing down to the sun god or you're fighting the view that you live in a culture that does not believe God and says that we are all here through time and chance. Whatever we are facing, whether you're facing whatever difficulty, whatever limitation you face, God is all-powerful. God is in charge. And as we read through the Bible, we find he makes a covenant with a people. He sends his son Jesus for for us as we are fallen in chapter three. We'll get to that. He loves us even when we were yet sinners. Jesus died for us. He did not spare his own son. And if he did not spare his own son, will he not along with him graciously give us all things, the scripture says. He has all power as seen in his creation. His love is communicated to us, the father creator. His love is created, uh, communicated to us in Christ who redeems us. He is a God of order, and he is building order in our lives. Even when it does not seem, even when your life seems chaotic, you know from the Old Test, from this passage, that God is a God of order who speaks and acts in an orderly way. And we know from the New Testament that he works all things together for our good. Some of you today, life is chaotic. You don't know what your purpose is. Things are out of control, circumstances are terrible, finances are out of whack, health is out of whack, relationships are going south. Um, 
There's fears and doubts about your future. There's pain from your past. And you look and say, life just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Well, here's what you know. There's a God of order who sent his son to die for you, who gave his life for you, who has redeemed you and is redeeming you. And it may not all make sense. He doesn't answer all the how questions. We see that in Genesis 1. We see that a lot in the Bible. He does not answer all the how questions, but he does answer the who question. And one day he will come for you face to face and we will be in a new heavens and a new earth where there will be perfect order without sin. There will be perfect glory. There will not be a son because it will be God who gives the light, the scripture tells us. Isn't this wonderful? At the beginning, there is light, God's light, before there is a son, day four. Light, day one, uh, son, day four. And in the end, there will be God's light without a son. That's where we're heading back, to the glory and the presence of God. And that day of beauty and order and love and sinlessness and everything is the way it is supposed to be, that day is coming. And until that day, hang on, because he's hanging on to you. And he is working things out for his glory. He is revealing himself to us through the scripture so we know where to repent and where to change. He is revealing himself to the scripture to give us hope for change, to give us power for change. He is at work. His creation is glorious, and we are moving towards his new creation. Well, we are already part of the new creation, and we're moving towards the ultimate new creation. He is a purposeful God, and he is bringing purpose. He is acting purposefully in your life. So my question is, where are you called to trust him today? You're not in the wilderness. You're not in the army. You're not about to go fight the big bad Canaanites. That's not you. But we are all in a wilderness of sorts, waiting for the eternal promised land. And so we're all called to exercise faith in the God who creates by his word, fulfilling his will and sustaining us. So where is it that God is calling you to trust him today? We worship him as creator and we trust him as creator. He's not the best person you ever met, he's God. He's in a category all by himself. And he can rescue and deliver and act for you today. Here's how I wanna close. I wanna just pause and I want you to think about an area, maybe there's a couple, but try to focus on one area where you need to trust the Lord today. It could be a hard situation, could be a sin that you need power to overcome by grace. Could be a longing of your heart that just, an unfulfilled longing that's a godly longing for a spouse, for a child, for a job, for a friendship. It could be an unfulfilled longing somewhere where you are fearful, anxious, desperate, Think about that area today and bring that to the God who creates everything. Bring that to Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And confess to God your trust in him in that area. You may need to ask forgiveness for failing to trust, for trying to do your own thing, for searching out other gods, other powers. Ask forgiveness for not leaning on him and relying on him and believing he is who he says he is. So if that's the case, ask his forgiveness. He forgives you. And ask him to 
help you trust him as creator who has all power and him as redeemer if he has not given his son will he not along with him graciously give you everything that you need Romans 8 says you've been listening to a message from Grace Church for more information visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org dot o-r-g